0: some of the smart devices such as smartphones and smart watches, the data that's collected through that can complement other clinical data such as blood tests and diagnostic imaging and can be used in in conjunction with these other things to inform a a clinical diagnosis or um, to inform a a clinical assessment of a patient. from
1: 2 107.3 and the University of Technology, Sydney. This is Think Health. I'm Evie McGuire. Today, you're going to hear two conversations, both looking at how your smartphone or wearable device could predict an illness through the data it collects about you. Now, it can be daunting to think about, but your smartphone knows more about you than you realise. So how would you feel if your very own digital device say your smartphone, Apple watch, or laptop, could forecast a sickness before you even showed any symptoms. A digital diagnosis could change the way we see health professionals and the nature of clinical assessments. But a lot of factors like cost, online security, inequality, and ethics play a crucial part in this new digital data monitoring era. To understand what a digital diagnosis really is, and what this means for the future of the healthcare industry, I spoke to Caleb Ferguson, a Senior Research Fellow at the Western Sydney Local Health District and Western Sydney University. Can you just in simple terms explain what a digital diagnosis is?
0: If you think about all of the data that's routinely or passively collected through all of your digital devices from things like Smartphones and um, other wearable accessories and um, smart watches, and um, when that's combined with things like um, web-based data and other sort of data points. So if you think about all of the, the individual pieces of a, of a jigsaw coming together to pr- um, present really a, quite a comprehensive um, picture um, of your overall health and well-being um, as presented to sort of some, of some of your digital data. So when it's all pieced together, it, it really tells um, an interesting story and quite a valuable and quite a rich story about someone's overall health and well-being
1: how would the role of a clinical assessment then change?
0: Yeah, so I guess um, most people carry a smartphone um, on them at most times of the day. Um, and, and at the moment, um, within clinical practice, the data that's sort of passively collected um, through your smartphone um, isn't something that's made uh, best use of in, in clinical practice. There's not really um, any uh, linkage between your smartphone device and, say, your electronic um Health record or electronic medical record as well, and so at the moment the only insight that clinicians could have into your smartphone type of data is to ask um, a patient for the consent to to use that data and to look at it. So within the clinical assessment, I think it's it's um, important that clinicians consider additional data to inform their clinical practice that might be captured routinely uh, through smartphone devices or other wearable devices that the patients are using. So I think it's important for clinicians to communicate with patients about um, the smartphone use and what they're using it for their health.
1: Are there platforms in place that can collect such large amounts of data?
0: So I think it depends what sort of data that you're referring to. Certainly I think a lot of the smartphone providers would hold a lot of different data and other um, health apps as well would collect and store a lot of um, personal health information. And I guess it's also important for consumers to be aware of, of the terms and conditions of different health applications and how that data is stored and that data is used as well.
1: Have you considered how it would be hard to get people's consent to, to allow this to happen?
0: Yeah, certainly. And I think it's important um, for us to maintain patient confidentiality and privacy, and um, issues related to data protection um, are very much relevant to confidentiality and, and privacy. So I think it's, a- it's actually around engaging patients to have consent, and that would probably at the moment, there is no linkage between, say, health apps and their electronic health records, but in the future, that might be something that would, um, would happen. At the moment today, the only way that a, that a clinician is able to access some of the, these data is actually to have the patient in front of them within the clinic um, and with, them, with their um, smartphone device.
1: I mean, there are some people in the community who don't own digital devices. I mean, how have these issues of inequality been factored in
0: Yeah, no, look, I think it's an emergent issue around um, access to to some digital devices, particularly around uh, smartphones or other wearable devices as well. And particularly if in the future wearables, um, as they become um, more prolific and uh, more clinically useful, then I can see how that could become an issue. I guess also it's important to highlight that this sort of myth exists um, and to debunk some myths related to the elderly and uh, older adults in relation to smartphone use and ownership and use, and that they're a group um, of, of increasing increasingly <laughs> will own a smartphone and uh, use smartphones as well. Um, but I agree that that's something um, to keep an eye on for the future.
1: What's next for digital diagnoses? I mean, are health professionals currently doing it?
0: I think that that wearables certainly um, are um, predicted to become more prolific in the market. I think as as you see, some people uh, view their smartphone device to be an extension of of self. Um, And I think the the more wearables become popular and the more the active or sorry, passive um, monitoring of uh, our health and well-being becomes more um, sort of daily integrated in, in uh, day-to-day sort of practices, and the less that we uh, are aware of these things, then that could be potentially more clinically um, important in the future. That was Caleb
1: Ferguson, a senior research fellow at Western Sydney Local Health District and Western Sydney University. Up next, how could a digital diagnosis help someone who suffers from heart failure? And what does this mean for patient-doctor relationships? Welcome back to the show. I'm Evie Maguire. This episode, I am looking at digital diagnoses and the way your smartphone or digital device could predict symptoms of an illness. My conversation with Caleb raised a lot of interesting ideas about the future role technology will play in our healthcare systems. Our chat raised some really interesting questions around policy and implementation. Sally Inglis is an associate professor at IMPACT, a research centre at the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. She explains what a digital diagnosis really means for someone with heart failure, but also how a digital diagnosis could restructure the entire relationship between a doctor and their patient.
2: So the idea of using this sort of monitoring technology is to actually be able to sort of capture what's going on with the patient um, outside of the hospital setting um, and look for maybe there are some signs, early signs, early warning signs that are indicating that um, maybe the patient's condition is deteriorating and that allows the clinicians to, you know, to make, make some changes or, as I said, monitor the patient a bit more closely um, and see what's going on there because ultimately we want to avoid people having to come in for long, lengthy stays in hospital. That's not really the best use of a patient's time. It impacts quality of life and also it has um, significant costs for the healthcare service. So the digital phenotype is actually looking at, I guess, everyone's like digital footprint to some extent that it kind of indicates what might be going on with that patient's health. Um, And, you know, in the era now of all these smart devices... You know, we're passively collecting so much digital information that we don't even know about. it. In fact, most people probably don't even realise what their smartphone is actually recording about them. Um, so there really is this opportunity to maybe tap into that as a resource, obviously with some caveats around security and privacy and consent, um, but to really look at, you know, maybe that's a, a good way that we could use data that's already been collected And with people's consent, use that to help flag perhaps when they do need that little bit of additional healthcare or assessment.
1: What is telemonitoring and then how does it relate to a digital diagnosis? Mm -hmm. So telemonitoring is
2: really the electronic transfer of um, physiological information. So those are things like heart rate, blood pressure, patient's weight It can also be, you know, some information around signs and symptoms. And if we talk about heart failure patients, which is my area of research, looking at the evidence to support telemonitoring for people with heart failure, one of the vital things that we really want people to be aware of is changes in their weight. Um, signs such as breathlessness, because these can indicate that the patient's condition is deteriorating. Um, and that can happen over a slower period of time or it can happen quite rapidly. So, telemonitoring is a way of remotely communicating that information between the patient and the clinician. And it can be done through many different mechanisms, most of which currently is sort of, you know, systems that are set up um, in the patient's home, which is connected through either the phone or an internet connection, maybe with an a separate device that the patient, you know, plugs information into or a set of scales that the patient stands on every morning and then that information is transmitted. Whereas the digital information that we're talking about is things that we're all carrying with us in our pockets or handbags every day. day. We're The data's really already been collected. Um, So how it relates is that maybe this is a way of where this sort of monitoring technology may evolve to in the future. And obviously anything to do with technology is a fairly rapidly evolving space. So I think that where I can see a benefit is that rather than patients maybe having to have a device that needs to be set up in their home, that maybe needs additional support, um and you know support to actually set it up but also you know if issues go wrong with that maybe if we've all got a smart device anyway in our lives maybe we need to tap into that as a way of supporting these patients um and i think that you know there are benefits of doing that there's obviously a lot of things that we need to look at and work through and more research that's required but i think it does hold potential
1: and what can we do about the data that's already being collected on these devices Well, I think it's um, interesting because everyone has
2: different understanding of what their device is capable of, um, and some people are more, I guess, into having their whole lives connected through smart devices and everything monitored and everything tracked um, and others maybe not so much. So I think there is, you know, it depends on the individual. I think people will have their own individual preferences for what they're comfortable with. Um, But I think that's also going to evolve over time. I think what we see now, you know, maybe in another two years' time, you know, maybe everyone's going to have, you know, every possible smart device in their life. (laughs) Um, And be tracking everything. So I think that how it compares to the data we're currently collecting is that it it just offers perhaps a little bit ease of use in terms of the data might be collected more passively. So rather than the patient needing to consciously remember and say, oh, that's right, I have to actually plug this information in today at nine o'clock and I have to do it every single day. You know, if these things are set up with obviously the patient's consent, but to be more passive in their data collection, you know, it's less obtrusive in that patient's life. We don't potentially, it might minimise issues to do with, you know, needing reminders or adhering to, you know, protocols of when the patient's supposed to do this. And also, you know, it has maybe a little bit of a security check in there in the sense that if this data's been collected um, and, you know, for whatever reason it's not collected, then maybe that also acts as a red flag. Whereas nowadays, you know, adherence can be a bit of an issue. We all forget to do something. Sometimes we get distracted. And, you know, if the patient's not clocking in at a particular time, you know, is that just because they've got caught up or is that mean something else has gone on? Whereas if it's been collected passively, maybe that's an, an easier way to kind of monitor things with less burden um, on the patient's life, um, which is, you know, may have potential benefits for quality of life you know if you're not having to consciously think i have to do this and i have to do this and i have to and for these patients you know um they have really complex medication regimes so you know just remembering when they have to take which medications how many times a day is a quite a burden on them to begin with so adding something into that um also is just adding to that complexity of things that they have to worry about
1: You sort of tapped on it earlier, but why would health professionals want to monitor this sort of information?
2: Yeah. So we still, I mean, even nowadays or, you know, even if I look back in the last five or 10 years or more, particularly in the heart failure population, it's really important to for patients to keep an eye on these particular parameters such as weight, breathlessness, for some people heart rate. Um, you know, blood pressure, because they do give us early indication that perhaps something's going on with that patient and we need to either adjust their medications or they need to come into hospital or, you know, even just to be reviewed by the cardiologist or the general practitioner. So I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, clinicians already like to be able to the patient to be out of monitoring, you know some of these aspects of their health. Um, there are systems that are set up um, you know internationally in other healthcare services, some in Australia, that actually you know utilize telemonitoring, or some of it is done by telephone support. Um, and so these, you know these data are being captured at the moment. Um, so I think that there is a benefit, and I think hopefully, you know, making these things easier to access and having the right systems in place to, you know, capture the data, analyse it and create a feedback loop between the clinician and the patient will actually, you know, reduce the burden on patients, potentially reduce the burden on clinicians. You know, we've all got busy lives. I think anything, you know, with the evolution of technology that makes our life easier has has got to have some positive benefits. So, I don't think that it's necessarily that the data is something new. I mean, the some of aspects of it are, but I think if we go back to the basic physiological parameters that we need to keep an eye on for these particular patients, you know, we already want to be capturing this information. It's just a case of how are we going about doing it and maybe, you know, how many people are we able to reach with these sorts of services currently and does the new, you know, evolution of technology, does that actually offer us, you know, an ability to reach more people than perhaps
1: we currently are? In the article, it mentions an alert system. So say there's someone who's got influenza. How would then the doctor know early on about the symptoms?
2: You know, influenza is a really, um, you know, something that people, for example, with chronic cardiovascular disease, we would prefer that they don't have influenza because it, you know, really carries significant complications for their health and well-being. Um I think in terms of the digital phenotyping data, I guess it comes down to capturing things that might flag that the patient's not feeling their normal selves. So, you know, when you take that definition in the wider context, you know, things like that people might put into searches online, um, you know, whether it's capturing, you know, disturbed sleep, you know, those sorts of things that indicate maybe there's, you know, the patient's just not, the pattern of what we're seeing is out of the normal. Um, But I think that you know if if i refer back to the cardiovascular population um as i said we we really do our best to try and educate patients around what we call self-care and self-management and self-monitoring um so you know i think that these sort of technologies offer an opportunity to kind of close that loop a little bit closer so that patients also feel that you know perhaps they are they are a little bit more connected with their healthcare and it's not sort of maybe i mean I don't think the researchers perhaps looked at this yet, but hopefully by bringing that, you know, that connectedness, people actually feel that they're not as isolated and that they can contact their health practitioner when they think, okay, I'm a little bit off today. Something's going on here. And then maybe they feel a little bit more comfortable with that connection already being there.
1: Well, speaking about connection, I mean, what does this do to the relationship between a doctor and a patient?
2: Mm hmm. I think the thing is that um, I'm a big believer that, you know, face-to-face interaction is still, um, you know, such a valuable part of healthcare. So whilst we might have all these different technologies that can help to support patients, it can make their lives easier, we can use, you know, mHealth technology for educating our patients – it's still really, really vital that we have that personal connection. Um, and, you know, as a clinician, you know, you need to see the patient and sometimes just having that face-to-face interaction tells you so much about what's going on in that patient's life that maybe why, why they've had a clinical deterioration, what's going on, what other things are they, you know, dealing with that might be complicating their situation. So I think the important thing is that this is a tool, but it's not, it can't be seen as a replacement for that face-to-face interaction. But then again, in Australia, we have this really, you know, issue with geography and we don't have the same level of healthcare services in all parts of Australia when we look at it geographically. And so I think that the potential of using things like telemonitoring or any kind of technology is that it actually does offer the opportunity to reach out to people who ordinarily might be missing out. Um, just purely based on the fact of where they live. And yes, they might have specialists who come visit them in their area or they travel into the city for those areas, but it's not the same as just having it on tap or on call. And I think that... um you know that's where i really see the advantage of using the technology so that we so that everyone has access to specialized care and everyone has the opportunity to you know have that sort of feedback loop between clinicians and to you know look get early um support if they feel that their condition is changing at all um so i think that that's really where i see um the biggest benefit but i think you know we're not at the stage where i think that face-to-face interactions are going to be replaced by this. I think it's just a very useful tool, but I think it's supplemental to, you know, the core business of healthcare, which is obviously face-to-face interactions between patients and nurses, clinicians, doctors, um, you know, allied health.
1: So then the role of a doctor itself wouldn't change too drastically then is what you're saying.
2: I think that it's, you know, technology is obviously changing our lives in many obvious and somewhat more subtle ways. Um, so it's hard to say that it, over time it's not going to change that relationship. I would hope that, um, as I said, that it, it, it benefits the relationship between patients and clinicians and that it supplements it um, and maybe it makes people um, more aware of, um, you know, actually communicating with their, their healthcare practitioner. Maybe it starts a conversation around, well, I've seen this in your data and,
1: you know, let's talk about that. Do you think that some way this could also mislead someone into a different kind of diagnosis and then how would that incorporate with the doctor? So, I mean, where I see these technologies to be initially set up um, would be for
2: people who have a confirmed diagnosis. Um, there, I see it as a different scenario, the general public you know, um, relaying sort of digital health data without any context of what diagnosis that person may have, whose care they're actually under. So I think I see this as an actual formalised um, interaction between a patient and a clinician, the healthcare service of, so you have this diagnosis, we'd like to set you up on this program, Do you know, with their consent, obviously. Um, and and it be actually a formalised sort of, Um, process. So in that way, it's, you know, it's the system is designed to target particular people who have particular healthcare conditions. And if I relate that to my area, you know, people say with heart failure. So, you know, they've got a confirmed diagnosis. They know that they've got heart failure. I mean, there can be different levels of knowledge of that. But one of the main things of caring for people with heart failure um, is to make sure that they're as well informed about what that is and what that means for them and how they need to self-care and self-manage. And if it's not them, it's their carers around them. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily see that, as I said, this would be just for general public use. I think that's a, that's a different scenario. For even for patients who do have chronic cardiovascular disease, you know, or any diagnosis, of course, we all Google when something goes a little bit amiss and we go, oh, you know, what could that be? But one of the things that already we do try to cover in, um, you know, patient self-management education is around the correct resources to be um, accessing. And there are a number of these sorts of things online that we promote to our patients or actual um, information that we give to our patients that is informed by the evidence um, and is the right sort of information to be accessing? So I guess if, if we as clinicians are doing the right thing by educating our patients well, they'll know, okay, so if I'm concerned about something, these are the steps I take. And obviously your first point of contact would be contacting your clinician saying, look, I'm a bit worried about this. Um, but also, you know, what where are the right um, sources of information to go to? But I think um, it really comes back down to patient education so that patients know who they can contact and when to contact them um, and where to access that information. I think I wouldn't feel comfortable, as I said, if this was a system that was just put in place for all of the general public to access because I think we would end up with some really complex, um, you know, situations around... um, you know diagnosis and people get you know we people do get get quite concerned um, by things but I think it it comes back to as I said I would see this as a tool that we can use for people who actually have a confirmed diagnosis and whether that's cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease or cancer or any other number one of you know of conditions you could you know expect it to you know be rolled out in the that similar sort of purpose I guess of how you might use this.
1: That was Sally Inglis, Associate Professor at IMPACT, a research centre at the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for tuning in to Think Health. This show is supported by the University of Technology, Sydney and 2 cr 107.3. It is broadcast nationally across the community radio network. This program is produced on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. If you want to listen to more Think Health episodes, then jump onto tourcr.com forward slash Think Health. You can also find episodes on your podcast app or in iTunes. Thank you both to Caleb Ferguson and Sally Inglis for being part of this episode. I'm Evie Maguire.